0: Welcome to the new campaign from Havas Links Generation Now, the impact of the millennial healthcare professional on our world. A campaign that investigates the impact of new science, technology and funding on the attitudes and behaviours of the millennial HCP, and questions what the future of medicine looks like through the eyes of someone who's grown up in a culture of constant connectivity. Episode 8, the future of healthcare. Presentation by Dr. Jack Kreindler, physician and technology entrepreneur. Thank you very, very much for having me this afternoon. Um, We're going to be talking about trying to solve a trillion dollar problem using data. But before I begin, I'm going to be talking about this thing. This is a Boeing 777 extended range aircraft with two ge 9155 b jet engines on it, but you didn't know that. Um, this is actually a really good trick. If any of you guys fly from London to Los Angeles, this thing stops on its way to Auckland, and it's really awesome. It's where I spend a lot of my life, um, and I spend it extremely safely because of the amount of data that is produced by these two engines. On a, on a return transatlantic voyage, This 777 aircraft produces approximately half a terabyte of data. Now, you can't look this up, but a little bit later, I'm going to ask you the question, uh, how many pages of A4 would it take to print out a half-terabyte report? A little bit about me. Um, I'm a doctor. I specialize in high-altitude medicine and physiology, so half of my life I hang out in places like this and the other half, in the somewhat more horizontal climes of California, uh, essentially working with supercomputers and artificial intelligence to help doctors make better decisions. And it all began because of this guy. This is Douglas Adams, who wrote what? What? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the most important trilogy in five parts ever written. Um, And one of the things you'll know if you've read the book, Um, is all about this supercomputer called Deep Thought. It was built by a race of hyper-intelligent, dimensional beings who got so bored of being so clever, they decided to try and find the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. And they built Deep Thought that took all the data available in the universe and spent 6.8 million years working out the answer to life, the universe, and everything and came up with the answer, correct, which is of course the difference between knowledge and wisdom, but that is a topic for another time. What Douglas really illuminated for me was this concept of how computing was accelerating at an exponential rate. Um, As we know, the Moore's law, or greater than Moore's law, improvement in compute power is seeing some absolutely unprecedented changes. Uh, Douglas in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy talked about a small pocket-sized device that contained all the wisdom and knowledge in the universe within it and was not written or created by particular editors or authors, but in fact by all of us. It's one of these. Do you know how long ago he wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide? Forty years ago. Beautiful, beautiful bit of prophecy, and he was, and he really inspired me, Douglas, to be aware of how it was that the world was going to change. He gave me my first job. I worked with him whilst I was training through medical school, and you know, since then we've gone from it t- costing literally billions of dollars and taking ten years to sequence the human genome, to the same thing being possible for is the exact price it costs now to have your whole exome sequenced, and it can be done in three weeks. In a year's time, that's going to be $100, and a year after that, it's possibly going to be $10. Every time you go to the loo, you'll be able to do a full genome sequence, if you particularly want to, pretty soon. That's all because of our ability to digest data and gain incredible insight from it. You know, some people think that even by 2045, a thousand dollar computer will surpass the brain power of all of our brains in the world put together. And it's looking like it's heading that way. We've come a very, very long way. 200 years ago, we invented the speculum. 100 years ago, we were still sticking tuberculosis inside turtles to try and get cures. Now, We have systems like IBM Watson um, who are better than teams of cardiologists to be able to diagnose and say what the next best thing is for complex cardiac conditions. I've got a question though, where is all this compute power going to take us in 100 years time? Well, to answer that question, I'm actually going to go back in history, to before the Greeks, to my favorite point in all galactic history. Let's see if this works. (laughs) lot. Darth Vader, the supreme supervillain from Star Wars. Darth Vader represents for me not just a a fantastic example of the future of medical technology and computing, but in fact how we're going to end up managing very, very complex, massive economic-scale crises in healthcare. Let me explain why. Darth Vader had 100% burns, Tons of stuff with his organs. No arms and no legs. Some psychological problems. Some minor issues. And, of course... COPD, which, of course is really problematic. But yet, Mr. Vader was able to run the galaxy and live life to the full, thanks to a mixture of extremely advanced biosensors, computing, and uh, micro to help his whole body, plus some robotics. I think he's a fantastic example of where we're going to be. A great inspiration to me, in fact. But it wasn't him that really inspired me. It was, in fact, his line manager, <laughs> Emperor Palpatine, played, of course, by the brilliant Ian McDermott, who, Back in 2008, and I'm not breaching confidentiality, this is was in the newspapers, he was on the stage at the Donmar, playing at the press opening of six characters in search of an author, a brilliant play, where he suffered a heart attack during the curtain call. And his agents phoned us up and said, hey, you guys work with all these elite athletes and stuff. You must be able to tell when people are having heart attacks. We can't possibly afford for Ian to not be able to act in this. Could you please make sure this doesn't happen again? And did get me thinking, actually, that maybe we could use some of the sensors that we use in Formula One drives and stuff to sense stuff in normal people and patients, too. So, um, oh yeah, this is just a small aside, actually. I just wanted to say that um, I wrote him a text message once. This is probably the most important communication I've ever had with another human being. And uh, he wrote back and asked me, basically, if my Jedi instincts were still intact, which was when I became the Imperial Physician, but that's another story altogether. (laughs) I don't actually work on the Death Star. I work here um, at my institute in London called the Centre for Health and Human Performance, uh, where essentially we use the secret source of elite human performance science to help very sick people get better outcomes. Uh, yes, we work with a lot of famous athletes and we have lots of amazing facilities. We also uh, work with lots of crazy celebrities. We do all the comic relief and sport relief challenges. Ever seen any of those? Yeah. Uh, so there's Eddie Izzard running 43 marathons in 50 days. There's Dave in swimming the Thames before he swin- swam the channel. Um, oh! Yes, and we do crazy stuff like throwing me in cage fights with Nick, the headhunter Chapman. Um, I I lost. (laughs) But it was important science. We actually did MRI scans on my body to see what would happen with rest ice compression and elevation, and actually showed that it did work. Science later proved that it didn't, but it doesn't matter, it worked on me, which is important. We have really, really interesting kit in our place. We've upgraded since then. And we measure an amazing amount of stuff on people, second by second. We can tell with frightening accuracy, notwithstanding things like being run over, how long you've got to live. And we can tell 40 years in advance how long you've got to live. We can also shift the curve, so don't worry, we can make you live longer. But it's what we do with athletes. A bit like what we do with jet engines. We're measuring stuff all the time to help keep them safely and economically in the sky. Back to my original original question. How many pages of A4 would it take to print out a half terabyte report? One page of A4. A very big page of A4. Or a very, very small printout. It's a hundred million pages of A4 which takes a long time to read in a ward round. But it's the average amount of information that it takes to to keep this thing safely and economically in the sky. In terms of data, this is what the state of the art was when I was born. Height and weight once a year, woefully inadequate. (laughs) How on earth would we predict anything? Which begs the question, would you get in an airplane that hadn't been checked for 50 years? The answer is no. And yet it takes us about 50 years to start going to the doctor and start measuring things once a year. How on earth are we going to project and know what, what's going to go wrong, when, and what to do about it? In 2012, I was lucky enough, I'm that kind of funny-looking guy in the top left-hand corner there with a huge smile on my face, uh, to get to Singularity University's medicine programme. If any of you guys could ever, can ever go to this thing, I really, really would. Basically, you get chucked in a room with about 100 of the cleverest people on the planet in robotics, stem cell biology, AI, this, that, and the other, and they download the future into your head. They also say that if the project you're working on is not intended to impact a billion lives over the next 10 years, you're in the wrong place. And it make you, makes you think. And it made me think, um, because we, we started to hear in 2012 about these newer sort of connected devices, wearables, some ingestibles, in future I'm sure there'll be hearables and smearables and all sorts of other things. But it got me thinking that perhaps all the stuff that we had in our, in our lab in London that you know costs a lot, can't be moved, needs Professor X, Y and Z to interpret all the data, could we possibly use these wearable devices to be able to get the same level of information as we get from, say, elite athletes, and actually help impact millions and millions of lives of those people who are costing the very, very most and suffering the most in healthcare, the people that are suffering from complex chronic disease. So, by the way, this is uh, Alan Shearer with uh, Robbie Savage there. Um, I don't know if you saw the comic relief thing where they uh, had to sit on every seat in Wembley Stadium and we had to see who was... Well, the funny thing is we could tell about two days in advance who was going to win because we stuck these prototype biosensors on them, and we were able to measure heart rate, breathing rate, stress level, step level, the energy expenditure, we could even see their ECG and any kind of stress on their heart, and and the temperature, and all sorts of stuff. And we were doing this in real time and able to show that Alan Shearer was going to win because his butt shifting was far more efficient. Anyway, Um, so I, I went away from Singularity University, and I knocked up a prototype with some very clever people. Uh, we managed to sort of hook up about 300 devices to a, uh, an analytics system, and we did something very clever. We wanted to build a system that could see in advance whether somebody who was going to get sick was going to get sick even before they had symptoms. And what we realized, though, is that we couldn't use data scientists, we had to use human language to bridge the gap. We built a system that let you write in natural language the kind of rules that as a doctor um, generate suspicion in your head that someone was, was getting ill. Um, And then we'd use sort of advanced machine learning to glue together all of these kind of uh, suspicion rules into the kind of multi-nested state machine that goes on in in your heads when you're a team of doctors looking at a person who's very sick. Uh, And then we used different classifiers like uh, different things like neural networks and, and random forests. And we ended up being able to predict with some pretty frightening accuracy five days in advance of people getting symptoms that they would end up in hospital. Um, We call the project Jointly Health, joining together basically what goes on in the lives and homes uh, of people, of patients, of sufferers, and what goes on uh, in the profession, Uh, also joining together what goes on in the minds of machines with the minds of uh, of doctors. Uh, Unfortunately, we got too many calls for hip replacements and medical marijuana. Jointly Health so we had to change our name, Um, and we became the first Singularity University labs company. It's called Centrion, like a lookout. Uh, It's won lots of fancy awards, and our aim is uh, to eliminate all preventable hospitalization. It's a trillion-dollar problem. Uh, Pleased to know we're rolling out to the first tens of thousands of of patients right now, and we're seeing some absolutely awesome results that will soon be published in peer-reviewed journals. With 88% accuracy and only 3% false alarms, machine learning is able to detect in most serious conditions that you'll end up in hospital so we can treat you actually before you get sick. It's important in heart failure. It's important in the risk of falling in neurodegenerative conditions. It's important for asthma and COPD. It's important in complex diabetes, where you get renal failure and vascular problems, too. And it's also important in cancer, especially when you get immunocompromised, or people now surviving cancer for a long time end up with heart failure as well. Those five conditions account for about 73% of all healthcare. And a hell of a lot of it is preventable. The cost, at very least, is preventable because of avoidable hospitalisation. So that's our aim. So this is me pulling off one of these biosensors from Alan Shearer. Um, Here it is. (laughs) Can you see how thin it is? Right. This thing measures heart rate, your ECG, body temperature. What else? Posture, whether you're lying, you're standing, falling, um, stress, breathing rate cost about $10,000 to do this for a Formula One race about 10 years ago. So with the benefit of exponential advances in technology, how much does this cost? Do you reckon? Two said tenor. costs about a dollar a day. It's so cheap, I'm going to give you one. <laughs> I stuck that on my chest a lot, but don't tell anyone that i disinfect it, if I'm <laughs> Okay. We believe that eventually, with devices like those, and tons of people are producing them, f- that for a dollar a day, including all the machine intelligence to, to compute it all, we will end up solving the trillion dollar problem that is the crisis we face with complex chronic disease. It's a mounting problem. Um, It's something that doesn't just affect America in dollars, it affects us in pounds. Um, Professor Martin Elliott is the medical director at Great Ormond Street, a huge uh, hero of mine, Uh, cardiothoracic neonatal surgeon um, who does things like 3D print human lung, dows them in stem cells, implant them back into kids that were otherwise going to die who are alive 15, 20 years later, living happy lives. But the thing that he really worries about the most is not about these stem cell technologies, it's about whether we'll be able to afford any of this. Because very soon we're going to have to save billions, I mean tens of billions of our budgets, which really requires efficiency improvements that are basically impossible. And really only through technology are we going to be able to do this. And if we don't, we're in super big trouble. I love infographics like this because they make you believe stuff. But you have to believe these things. They are really important. We are facing, if we do not reduce this massive crisis we face, absolutely impossible amounts of cost in healthcare for an ever-growing older population what causes all this well this is a slight academic thing that i'm going to just breathe th- breathe through really really quickly um all of our problems really associated with complex chronic disease are because of tissues degenerating and forgetting what it is that they're meant to do there's a brilliant article in a in a journal called cell called the nine hallmarks of aging and it goes through these things it's a beautiful synthesis of basically how we don't have to just only manage these problems economically, we also have to get to the root causes of them. And I hope the, uh, the farmer giants in the room divert some of their attention to some of these things because otherwise we're just gonna be managing an impossible crisis. Um, that you know affects our bodies, affects our minds, affects our friends and families, affects our uh, employers and economies, and does affect our world. So we are going to have to do something about it. But where do we look? Where, where do the answers lie? Well, I felt that the answers lie in California, which is where I built my company and further projects. But why California? I think there are three important ingredients to this very magical part of the world. The first is that there are a critical mass of geeks, very clever people who believe they can change the world. And guess what? A significant proportion of them actually do. There's another important ingredient, and that is there's a critical mass of greed Money from investors, where they're corporate investors, people who are, uh, you know, have have large companies that want to keep an eye on these uh, marvelous disruptive uh, entrepreneurs or VCs that just want to make a lot of money. Um, They fund these geeks and they fund them far, far better and far more aggressively at an earlier stage than they do in the UK. And the next thing, whoops, the next thing is that we have a critical mass of very, very willing clients who, are, who want to innovate and make the first move. They want to be able to test innovative solutions that are s- simply wild. And our NHS, unfortunately, is slow to do this. Even despite great things that are going on in the moment, like the accelerated access review, we are really slow in the UK and we need to learn about how a competitive environment where people's heads roll because innovation doesn't happen like America, especially in California. We need to learn from that and try and inject some of that uh, willingness to take risk um, and try out out new things, prove them out, and help them roll out to the rest um, of the market. And there's one secret ingredient I've been talking about for a little while, which is, I don't think it's coincidental I've been invited here, because I think the secret ingredient is communication. I think that in order to make a lot of this happen, We have to completely change the way we communicate the ideals and the purpose of healthcare. I think we have to use creative means to instill a new type of um, purpose, really, to what it is to be a doctor to what it is to produce medicines, to what it is to be a patient, and to completely deconstruct those weird boundaries between doctors, patients and providers of healthcare that have existed for two and a half thousand years. So the communication agencies are an extremely important part to catalyse that change and to make some of this innovative stuff happen. Will it mean, with all this data and with all this computing, that we'll end up with big computers like Deep Thought telling us what to do? with people like me just pushing boxes around. I don't believe so. I believe that there's going to be a global effort with human brains, the brains of patients, the brains of doctors, the brains of pharmaceutical agencies, with the communication power of agencies that are designed to help us communicate these new ideas to each other and with each other, a global effort um, in order to bring new technologies to market and to actually solve some of these major, major problems, these grand challenges that humanity faces with the rising cost of complex chronic disease. I just want to end by saying do not underestimate the power of exponentially advancing technology. It is catching up with everybody, it's in everyone's pocket. And if we do not marry what we do with the pace of change in technology, we'll be absolutely left behind. Don't underestimate the power of yourselves. You are all gathered here for quite an important event, and that is an event where you can learn new stuff, hopefully get a bit inspired, and actually take that into your work and change the way that people communicate, change the way that people think about what they're doing in healthcare, change the way that doctors perceive their role as well. The millennial doctor is a real phenomenon, and part of your job, I think, is to make sure they understand that they are not just subject to evidence and practice, best practice, but they can actually make massive changes as individuals. And finally, do not underestimate the power of the dark side. Thank you. Just, just before, just before I go, um, I wanted to share with you a little story about a patient who I think greatly benefited from exponentially advancing technology and communication. Um, this lady. Um, is a patient of ours, and about five years ago, started having problems uh, with fertility. She couldn't have a kid, and so she came to us and said, "Look, you know, they they say that um, I've got to go and have IVF. Is this the right thing?" And I said, "Well, you know, why don't you go and see a specialist first in in." in, in gyne- gynaecology and, you know, maybe just get you checked out first in case there's anything going on. So she, she went to a specialist who uh, did some scans, and the MRIs came back. One report was that it was a completely normal scan, and the other report came back as saying that she had tuberculosis of the womb, which I found very peculiar that, you know, two s- same scan, two people looking at it. One could say... Th- It was okay. Another one, tuberculosis. I haven't seen tuberculosis of the womb for maybe 150 years. But anyway. Um, And it it did actually get me thinking, well, how come with all of the MRI scans that have ever been taken over anyone's wombs, with all of the actual final outcomes and answers that have been made, aren't, aren't we using such data sets and analytics to give this person a clear answer? first question I asked. Anyway, the next thing is they said, well... Um, I think you should go straight on to IVF, seeing as it's all normal. But her specialist said, no, no, wait, I'm not quite happy with this answer. I'm going to go against the rules, and something tells me that I need to do um, a laparoscopy to have a look at what's going on. Um, And I I, I know I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I just feel that I have to do it. Anyway, so she had the... uh, the, the investigative procedure, and um, she came back, they came back with an answer for her. And the answer was, um, well, the reason you can't have kids and the reason you'll never be able to have kids is because you have cancer throughout the entirety of your womb. Obviously, this was bad. And led me to ask another question, which is, why did we not capture that hunch that weird bit of intuition and the reasons behind it that that particular specialist had to be able to make that move, go against the rules, get told off for it, but get a decent answer. Another thing that is now happening quite quickly is the ability for us to be able to gather those kinds of uh, unstructured data and reasons, and uh, and to help avoid situations like this. So obviously she, you know, was very, very, very sad, and uh, she asked us for our advice um, and i and i said well look what do they want to do they said well, it's an operation they want to do it next week that's christmas eve that's really rough uh, i'm going to never be able to have kids what do you reckon and i said well look um i'm going to pull out a piece of exponentially advancing technology out of my pocket and uh, phone up a few people and funnily enough um, i got answers from five different professors on the planet in a shorter period of time and she got a letter back from the hospital saying that they wouldn't give her a second opinion until two months down the line. It's very, very strange. Power of communication and connectivity. And uh, one of the answers that I got was not from a specialist, it was from a mathematician, who sat down and did a whole load of work with her to predict, given her stage of cancer, whether doing an emergency round of IVF to capture some eggs would make a difference to her cancer outcomes, even despite all of the oncologists and surgeons saying you've got to take this out tomorrow. And um, she worked out the odds and decided that there was a 0.001% chance that over the next three months, this uh, an emergency round of IVF would make a difference to her stage of cancer. So, uh, so against all the advice of every single one of the medical people treating her. She did an emergency round of IVF. She found out where the best IVF clinic was in the UK based on data and results which again she found through the internet. Probably not available to her five years ago but available now. And uh, she put five, six eggs on ice, fertilized by her husband, Uh, and then she went through with the operation a couple of months later. The operation didn't quite go according to plan, um, and they found that one of the ovaries was looking really nasty, and they said to her that it actually wasn't womb cancer only. It had spread from the ovary, which meant that she would have to have another operation to completely remove basically everything inside her, have massive chemotherapy, radiotherapy, absolute life-changing procedures with a very slim chance of improving the length of her life and an absolute guarantee that the quality of her remaining years would be pretty awful. And so she asked us again, what should we do? So I pulled out a piece of exponentially advancing technology and managed to get hold of the histology and send them off to a couple of places in the States, not expensive to do the genome sequencing, uh, deep genome sequencing on the tumours. And um, despite the histologist saying that it was the same, it was spread, that it was the same cancer, turns out they were two completely genetically different tumours. Two stage 1A primaries, luckily found. No more operations, no more chemo, no more nothing. That's the difference between a bit of communication, a bit of data technology, a bit of picking up the phone. Frightening. But she didn't have a womb, so she had to find a surrogate mother. And in the end, um, this happened. It's about two and a half years ago, maybe a bit more. Um, yeah, a surrogate mother was very kind enough to carry her child. and. Almost exactly two years ago, this happened. Which I think you'll agree is a very different outcome than she was facing potentially before. The reason I know that it's almost exactly two years ago is because of this. Basically, I have to make an admission to you this is not my patient, this is my wife. And also, named Sienna, is my baby daughter. Um, It literally was on the stage of Wired, I got that text message. And a year later, I was very privileged to be able to share this story and demonstrate that with communication, with connectivity and with intelligent use of data, You can make a massive, massive difference to people's lives. And this is her just last week. Thank you.